so that's um, pretty gripping stuff. I mean, there's no there's no way to look at that and not you know feel like roots. Or I don't know. Maybe there's ways of looking at it and, and sensing that he's telling the absolute truth. But I, I don't get that sense watching it. I, I get a sense of someone who's really covering his tracks and maybe has been convinced into believing that his story is absolutely accurate. Maybe that he's got some right to have been there. But you know, this is a 17 year old teenager who doesn't even have the right to carry a, a normal weapon. That's why he's got this AR-15 because of a weird loophole. But he's not even from that state. He lives in a neighboring state, although his dad does live in Kenosha. And then here he is, you know, patrolling at 17 and, and on a night when there was an actual curfew, when there were people were told to stay off the streets. He's going out there claiming to be a medic. He's doing interviews with the uh, Daily Caller, I believe, at the time. It was stuck out right away. I remember the night it happened. I immediately retweeted that uh, the Daily Caller tweet because it made no sense that someone like that was having media following him around, claiming to be a medic, claiming to be a firefighter, and being none of these things. And he's got media following him around, not just any media, but the Daily Caller, you know, the home of white nationalism. So why is Kyle Rittenhouse there that night? You know, the, it certainly seems like he's legitimately saying that he was concerned about the community, but he doesn't really know that community that well. He doesn't really know the owners of the store or his garage that he uh, was there to, to help protect. Why is he doing that? Why is his mom letting him be there? You know, and uh, this goes on and on throughout the day as people really questioned his very, his motives for being there. And the trouble that I have with all of this is, you know, when you really look at where Kyle went from that day onwards, he went into these guys' hands, you know. The guy on the right, you will recognize as a former child star, Ricky Schroeder. The guy on the left is Lynn Wood, a former, not Lynn Wood, sorry. It's another one of Trump's uh, attorneys. I forget the name. I can't believe I forget the name. It'll come to me in a second. But, you know, there was a $2 million bailout for Kyle. He was taken out of prison. He didn't have to face much uh, time in, in serving bail. And who, who funded that $2 million bailout? Well, look who funded the $2 million bailout. All the same people, all the same people from Stop the Steal, all the same people from the insurrection, all the same people that we've seen so many times. Thank you. Someone just pointed out to John Pierce is the name of the attorney um, that we're talking about with his arms around Kyle at a bar promoting a coffee company called Black Rifle because that's funny. You know, this is just a few weeks after the fact. You've got Rudy Giuliani supporting this $2 million bailout of Kyle Rittenhouse. You've got uh, Rebecca Mercer supporting the $2 million bailout of Kyle Rittenhouse. Then you've got Lynn Wood. That is Lynn Wood up at the top in that first cloud. Uh, Mike Lindell of the famous MyPillow company. And then some uh, radio or podcast host who I'm not familiar with, I think from Glenn Beck's TV outfit. But you get the sense of what I'm saying. Here came a manufactured event. Now, I'm not saying he was forced into the situation by these people. I don't know. No one knows yet, you know, whether anyone was forced or, or somehow coerced into heading into the situation. But I know after it happened, these are the people that pounced on this teenager and probably caused more damage than they did any good for this guy. If there was any saving to do, it would not be in the hands of these people who later on, you know, would lead an insurrection, um, attempt to stop the steal, and, and God knows what else they did. These people were basically fundraising of this kid. And again, America just taken for a ride. You know, these are grifters. They are stealing money from people by saying, you know, send us your money to the Kyle Rittenhouse Defense Fund and we'll do this or that. It's a load of crap. The money disappears in a lot of cases. And I know that he finally did ditch them. But the reality of it is, you've got a guy who's an impressionable young person for whatever reason. You might, you know, think that he's narcissistic, crazy, whatever all these things are. 
We don't know, but he's still 17. I mean, at 17, you deserve a little bit of empathy, at least, about what he was doing. And there is nothing but coercion and grifting and the worst kind of people surrounding him. I can't stand it, to be honest. I do think, you know, he's in a bit of trouble after today's testimony. does not appear to me like he's going to walk out of that courthouse if the judge is, in fact, and the jury is, in fact, not biased. And there's a real possibility that we might see some of that. It's an all-white jury. You saw the judge. You saw everyone else in that courtroom. Very, 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 very Wisconsin white. So uh, that's how this case is going to be tried. That's how we'll find out. It's certainly important for me to have just shared with you some of those clips today because you're not going to see them in a lot of places. The clip you're going to see over and over again is him crying at the beginning there. Yeah, it's a great clip. It makes for great TV uh, ratings. I know that because I used to do mainstream TV, so I know what they're going for. But all this other stuff that's really, really crucial you're probably not going to get to see as much as you should. So I wanted to share it with you tonight. Please reshare it wherever you can. And this is this case is not done deal for Kyle Rittenhouse, which is certainly what impression we were left with when we started this morning. So uh, keep watching this space, as someone on television likes to say. Now, when we return, this is exciting, because I'm obsessed with the story of Robert Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And, you know, Kirby Summers is one of the best authorities around the story. And as we were planning to do an interview, it occurred to me that November is here. And, you know, for all of us who study this stuff as much as close as we do, November is when Robert Maxwell mysteriously died. He fell off his yacht. He named his yacht after his beloved daughter, Ghislaine. Some people say he was murdered. I tend to agree with them. We'll tell you who we think murdered him. Plus, we'll tell you what's going on in her court case, which begins next week. So, if you thought the Kyle Rittenhouse court case was one to watch, I think even the jury selection next week is going to be interesting and it will be open to the public. So all of that is coming up in a second. We'll talk to Kirby Summers about her book or books about these incredible characters in our recent modern history. And all of that is coming up in just a second. I've got to just try to find something here. Um, you know, sometimes you've got to play a commercial and you didn't set it up. So I'll just chat. How are you everybody tonight? Are you guys okay? It's nice to see you. Thanks for showing up. It's a busy day. It's a busy news cycle we've had, and uh, the news just keeps on intensifying. I don't know how we're going to manage to cover it all over the next few weeks, but we are sure going to try. You know what? I am going to play it towards the end of the show because I don't want to waste your time or mine. Instead, let's go into uh, the interview that I did with Kirby. Uh, this is really interesting. Kirby Summers talking about her book and the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, which is just a week away. Leave me your comments as we play this. This is the front page from the New York Times on the 6th of November, 1991. And you can see the other story from the Daily News. Robert Maxwell dead at 68. It happened 30 years ago, just last Friday. Um, quite a monumental piece of history because, as many of you know, we are still facing the remnants of the death and still a lot of confusion around that death 30 years later. And his daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell, stands on trial next week as soon as next week, when the jury is finally picked for her long-awaited trial. With all of that in mind, I thought it'd be a great idea to bring the one and only Kirby Summers on the show, who's a Ghislaine Maxwell biographer. She's written many books about Epstein. Her latest is called Ghislaine Maxwell, an Unauthorized Biography, and Kirby Summers joins us. Kirby, it's um, quite monumental, this uh, 30-year anniversary for those of us who follow uh, Robert Maxwell. A hundred percent. First, I want to thank you for having me on, Zev. It's amazing that November is such a crucial month 
for the life of Robert Maxwell in the fact that he lost his life, right, on November 5th, 1991. Ghislaine's trial, as you wonderfully pointed out, the grand jury selection will be terminated by the 15th, which is five days from today. And her trial begins on November 29th, so I am sure that this is the last thing anyone in the Maxwell family expected would happen to Ghislaine Maxwell in November, especially, you know, a month that continues to haunt them, I think. Absolutely, because we still do not know to this day, even though many of us have a very good suspicion, we still don't know officially how he died. I mean, the cause of death is certainly not natural causes. It's, uh, it was something else. He fell off a yacht, which he named after Ghislaine, his beloved yacht. And uh, people suspect that it wasn't quite that. And you go into great detail in your book as to what it might be based on your research and other people's research. And certainly it feels to many people like it was an Israeli intelligence service that may have been involved in the death of Robert Maxwell. Well, that's certainly what Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, who co-wrote Robert Maxwell, Israel's super spy, surmised they sat down and they interviewed Rafi Eitan, who you know, he is really Israel's super spy, you know, and he was also the handler, not just for Robert Maxwell, but he was the handler for Jonathan Pollard. So they sat down and they have been writing books for a very long time about Mossad history and all of that. And they came away with some documentation indicating that Robert Maxwell had indeed run into financial difficulties toward the end of his life. He was a big spender, as you know, I mean, Galen inherited the same problem. You know, you spend money that you don't have, you move it around, you play around with selling the same stock twice. It's sort of like a little bit of like, um, well, let's not call it a little bit. It's very fraudulent what they did. They overextended. They lied on bank applications. And so that he eventually, according again to Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, went to the Mossad for whom he was working and had a pretty good relationship. And, but basically, you know, bottom line, Robert Maxwell was not one to ask someone in a very nice way. It appears that he bullied them and said, if you don't lend me money to get over this hump, which he believed he would get over. Don't forget, like in the 1960s, he went sort of bankrupt for the first time. It took him five years to crawl out of that first bankruptcy. And he believed that he would crawl out of this bankruptcy as well. He just needed a little bit of help. The Mossad is thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> He's pushing us around. Yeah, not really? a good idea generally to threaten the yeah. Mossad or any intelligence yeah. agency. Uh, no. with any sort of blackmail scheme. It's certainly you can't go to them and say, give me money or else I'll reveal all your secrets because, you know, they are they do have a national security interest at, at heart. So they might yeah. do something. So like, you know, here Robert Maxwell has a lot of secrets, especially about the compromised version of Promise, which he was completely involved with, mm -hmm. you know, with the back door selling it to Sandia Laboratories. And, you know, this is a time where the relationship between Israel and the United States is a little bit uh, still uh, challenging because they're trying to get over the Iran-Contra scandal that where basically Mossad helped the CIA uh, with the providing of arms and all of that. And so there's this relationship that's already a little taut 
And for Robert Maxwell to have gone to them instead of like in a position of, hey, <laughs> guys, do me a favor, he threatened them. And so uh, according to um, Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, again, it was five guys, you know, that went on this little boat and when his yacht, the Lady Galen, on November 5th, sort of entered into the Canary Islands because he showed he was not feeling good. He was already on the yacht for several days. He was doing fine. He had taken himself to sort of like they land in another place. He went and had a very lovely dinner. He followed it with a after um, sort of an after dinner drink. And then, you know, he made a few phone calls. He went back to the Lady Galen. He spoke with his son, Ian. Um, and then he spoke with uh, Samuel Pissar, who he had known since, I believe, right after the war. He had been his lifelong friend. And that was sort of like around 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then by, what, 5 o'clock in the morning, nobody can find him. And it's man overboard. He had not one autopsy, but two. During the autopsy that was done, it was discovered, as you probably know, now he was a very obese man, as everyone knows, that there was a pulled muscle, mm. uh, a lot of torn ligaments on the part of one of his shoulders. And it implied that he had, whether he was pushed or fell or whatever they thought, that he attempted to, you know, hold on. Right, mm -hmm. because like that's what caused the kind of break that he had. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So, um, Galen is one of his offspring who never believed it was it was a suicide. She she was like my father would never commit suicide. Now, all of this reminds me a lot of the way Jeffrey Epstein died because we never really found out the truth about that either. But there were certainly autopsy uh, results that suggested. There was something uh, other than just suicide at play, um, which is the official reason. And that's because, you know, there's another big echo between these two gentlemen. Certainly Robert Maxwell was a spy for the Israeli um, military intelligence, I believe, through my research. That's who I believe he reported to. So was um, Jeffrey Epstein a spy for, or at least an asset for the Israeli military intelligence. And both of them meet to this sort of untimely end uh, under difficult circumstances. You know, Maxwell blackmailing the intelligence agencies and Epstein potentially doing similar things because he was just in jail and threatening to also potentially uh, reveal some secrets of his own because, you know, wouldn't that be necessary to get out of jail in that situation? There's a lot yes. of echoes between these two men. Yes. However, while I believe that Jeffrey Epstein was working for Mossad. And in fact, few people know that when he was arrested in Palm Beach, he went on his plane. Typically when you're arrested, your passport is removed. I'm sorry, charged. When he was initially charged, and it took a long time because as you know, he had the best attorneys and they kind of fought back with Alexander Acosta for a while. And so it was a protracted situation. However, Jeffrey Epstein, on the end of May, and I'm trying to remember the year, I believe it was 2008, end of May, he gets on his plane and he goes to Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, who else goes to Israel at the same time? I just want to, I'm not, I won't stay too long on this, but I want you to know this. Israel is at this point celebrating their 60th anniversary. 
mm-hmm. 60th anniversary. George uh, Bush is the president. George Bush turns around and he invites Leslie Wexner. Isn't that interesting to go to Israel at the same time? That is interesting. So, yeah, so they're all in Israel at the same time, and Epstein was not going to come back. He really was not. A newspaper article came out, and they have it actually attached to Jeffrey Epstein, Predator Spy, which is another one of my books, um, showing that he checked into the Four Seasons Hotel at, you know, at uh, Jerusalem, and that he was conducting, I guess, to cover for him, right? That he was conducting some kind of walkthrough through their military base. Now, isn't that an unusual thing for someone who was being, first, he was supposed to be a real estate uh, like guru. Then he was supposed to be a financial guru. And suddenly he is in Israel right before he's supposed to be turning himself into the Palm Beach authorities, looking at the military base of Israel. Well, it seems to me all right, that because it was the 60th anniversary of Israel becoming an independent state, right, an independent nation by itself, and we have Leslie Wexner, who's already there, that they sat down and they had a meeting, George, it seems to me it cannot have gone any other way. George Bush sits down with, I forget the name of the prime minister, it could have been her sir, I, I don't Shamir, remember. I'm not sure, it would have been probably Shamir. Right? No, it was not, I don't not think it was Shamir. Uh, okay. no, no. Okay. It, I, I don't think well, it was. But Sorry, 2008 would have been... Uh, 2008. Yeah, let me... Uh, it'll come to me. While you're talking, it'll come to me. But, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so it seems to me that they sat down with him and said, hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go well. Go mm-hmm. back. Because, it, you know, that would have brought a lot of attention to Israel. This said, he was also working for the CIA, I've discovered. Right? So it wasn't mm-hmm. just that... He was working for Mossad. He was working also for the CIA, as was Galen Maxwell, because Leslie Wexner is connected to the CIA. So, you know, they were both, I guess, you know, spies. It just seems Robert to me that they were, all, they were all at least assets of all, all these agencies. And like Robert Maxwell, he, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine seemed to freelance for a bunch of uh, intelligence asset, intelligence agencies, I should say. You know, they went to the highest bidder in many cases, or what was strategically important for maybe Israel or the United States at the time. It's interesting that they all have ties to all these intelligence agencies. And yet somehow, you know, this has been an open secret, I would say, for 30 years. And yet we're still facing a court case right now that Ghislaine Maxwell is going to go in front of a court. And no one knows for sure what her status is in terms of this intelligence agencies. The court cases presumably are going to be specifically about the allegations made against her. And yet there's a bigger reason maybe that all these things happened, that, you know, her, her cases and her crimes, uh, alleged crimes took place, that they're, you know, were maybe following orders from intelligence agencies. And I don't know if we're going to ever find out the truth about that. Do you? I can tell you 100%, we're never going to be told. I mean, Alexander Acosta, when he made that statement, um, I was told to back off that Epstein belonged to intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was in the middle, he had prepared, I believe it was a 50-page indictment against Epstein that would have put him in jail for a very long time when he was approached by his superiors in the United States government and basically told, to back off Epstein, Epstein, if you remember when he was in Palm Beach, was treated very leniently. He, he was put into a separate jail, which was empty. He didn't have to lock his door. He was allowed to 
rent an office. He gave it some kind of name with the word scientific in it where he would go every day for a total of 12 hours with the exception of Sunday. He had his own bodyguard, his own driver. He had, you know, people pick him up and he had everybody visit him. Uh, Jean-Luc Brunel, he had Nadia uh, Marcinko, who he told everyone was his sex slave that he had gotten from Yugoslavia, visit him on a regular basis. And he visited elsewhere on a regular basis. We will get back to more Kirby. Either if we can do it on this show, we'll do it on another show uh, because that is a really fantastic interview. But I wanted to get Glenn Kirshner in here because... Isn't that interesting just that the Ghislaine Maxwell trial is just a week away after all this time? Are you even following that, Glenn? You know, I've, I've been following a little bit of it. I can't say I'm up on the evidence, but I know it's in jury selection, and I know jury selection will be extraordinarily challenging um, nice. <laughs> because there are so many volatile issues involved. But, you know, after picking juries for 30 years, I've always maintained that we can pick fair and impartial juries to sit in pretty much any case. And I think we've proved that point with the Paul Manafort prosecution when there was a self-proclaimed MAGA person on the jury who said, you know, I wore my MAGA hat to court every day. I left it in the car. I put it on at the end of the day. I'm a Trump loyalist. I didn't want to vote guilty for Paul Manafort, but I took an oath and the evidence proved him guilty and I voted guilty. I believe even in the upcoming Trump trials, fingers crossed, we'll be able mm. to pick a fair jury. Glenn Kirshner, by the way, of course, former federal prosecutor, famed analyst on TV and a big proponent and a champion of justice, no matter what the case. And I really wanted to speak to you today about what was going on in uh, Kenosha, because what a riveting day of testimony. And there was some good lawyering, I thought, particularly on the part of the prosecution. You know, we started the day with everybody saying that, you know, this was a done deal, that, you know, Kyle was just going to walk away with this. And, you know, halfway through Kyle being on the stand, it seemed pretty apparent that uh, he was not being very helpful to his own case. Yeah, I think um, this is a challenging case for both sides. You know, anytime you have a young man who has no business, Second Amendment aside, who has no business running around uh, a volatile situation pretending to be some sort of, you know, uh, vigilante or private law enforcer. You're running around with an AR-15 that you have no business possessing or transporting across state lines, and you kill two people and seriously injure another. He starts deep in a hole as far as the evidence and the expectations go. You know, I actually tried to watch his testimony pretty carefully. He was an extremely well-prepared, extremely well-coached defendant slash witness. And coaching is not a dirty word. Every witness Mm -hmm. is coached. I was, as a prosecutor, I would coach my witnesses to tell the truth. And Mm -hmm. I would try to coach them to be very precise in the answers they gave. If you don't know, you don't remember, then you say you don't know or you don't remember because you took an oath and that's the truthful answer. I don't care if it helps my case or hurts my case as the prosecutor, you're obligated to tell the truth. So yes, we do coach, not a dirty word, witnesses. You know, I do think his emotional outburst probably bought him some fans in the jury box. I do think the defense attorney was pretty good about trying to prove precisely why he discharged his weapon on each of the three occasions. And I look at the evidence of when he didn't discharge his weapon. This was very good tactic by the defense team. 
he testified there was somebody coming at me with a pipe there was somebody coming at me with a fence post he said but i raised my weapon they backed off and i didn't discharge my weapon i didn't fire obviously the message there was i only fired when i was in imminent risk of death or serious bodily injury myself which is what gives rise to the lawful ability to use deadly force to repel that kind of attack. I think this is a wide open case at the moment. I could see a conviction, I could see an acquittal, I could see a hung jury. And Zeb, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, $1 is my limit, I would bet one buck that we're likely to see a hung jury. Interesting. You know, I, to what to the line of questioning you were just talking about, he did say he was feeling uh, threatened, but by seemingly imaginary things. I mean, there was, you know, in one case, there was no weapon, but he thought he was, you know, someone was coming after him because they wanted his weapon or chasing him. I mean, you know, in another case, there was a weapon, but it wasn't really being uh, discharged at him. So the feeling of feeling threatened, even when you've placed yourself voluntarily in a dangerous situation, is that an excuse? I mean, you've, you know, it's like great. walking into that's a fire. A, that's a great question. Here, so here's mm. the law of self-defense in Wisconsin. It's very similar to the law of self-defense in D.C., and frankly, elsewhere, even though each jurisdiction has its own quirks in the law. So the reason you see a defendant take the stand in a self-defense case, and you almost never see defendants take the stand in an alibi case or a reasonable doubt case, is because if you're going to successfully assert self-defense, there's a two-part test. You have to have an honest belief that you need to use deadly force to repel the attack to save your own life. And that honest belief has to be reasonable. So it has to be both subjective and mm, objective. Objective is up to the jury because the jury can say, based on the evidence, the reasonable person would do this or would refrain from doing that. But it's the honest and actual subjective piece of the law of self-defense that forces defendants to the stand to say, I honestly, subjectively, actually feared for my life and believed I needed to use deadly force to repel the attack. And here's the interesting thing under Wisconsin law and incidentally DC law, once a self-defense claim is raised by a defendant, the prosecutors have to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable mm. doubt. It's not that way in every jurisdiction. Interesting. That is a pretty high hurdle for prosecutors to cross. And that's why I could see the jury either coming back with a lesser degree of homicide or hanging because all 12 jurors can't unanimously agree on one verdict. The interesting thing here, I mean, you mentioned the jury, this all white jury, which is interesting. Not that it necessarily means they're biased, but it certainly suggests that that could be the case. But, you know, the evidence that the prosecution has is enormous amounts of videotape. I mean, a lot of that night was captured on video. We know how effective that is because you can't really argue against video. I mean, you can, but it's, you know, a lot of the times it's a very accurate reflection of what happened. And we've seen that with George Floyd. You know, he could be stuck in a situation where he's arguing against something that can be so easily disproven by these tapes. And I think we saw that a couple of times today. Yeah, and what his defense team tried to do is get him to give an account, I don't wanna say mold his testimony, but give an account that was as consistent with all of the video evidence as it could possibly be. Because mm -hmm. if you depart 
from what jurors see with their own eyes on those tapes, well, then they're going to, you know, discard what you have to say and find your account not particularly credible. But I think there's a lot for both sides to work with here. And, you know, what he did say was, look, a shot went off behind me. I turn around. Somebody's lunging at me, trying to grab my gun. I discharged my weapon. That's my words, not his. He said for the other one, a guy was coming. He's kicking me in the face. His boot is coming down. I'm going to get stomped to death. I discharge my weapon. The other incident, the guy's got a gun, he's raising it, I discharge my weapon. Uh, I mean, either the jury is going to buy that he was actually and honestly in fear of death or imminent bodily injury such that he had no choice but to use deadly force or they're not going to buy it. Mm. And if they don't buy it, you know, if they buy it, they've got to buy this idea that he was going to extinguish these fires, which seems kind of ludicrous. Like going into a dangerous situation three blocks away with his apparently fires, you're a 17-year-old being followed by media. Why is he being followed by media? I mean, the whole thing is just, it, you know, it probably isn't, but it looks a little bit like it's contrived. Um, yeah. And I think that's the challenging thing for Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, you sort of feel for him in some ways because 17-year-old kid might have been just been wrapped up in something, but it feels like it's a contrived event when you've got the Daily Caller following you around as you're going to extinguish fires and happen to land yourself in front of a mob. Yeah, he wanted to have his social media moment, perhaps. Mm-hmm. He wanted people to perceive him as a hero or a do-gooder. And I agree with you, some of it does feel contrived, but you know, the defense would respond with, well, wait a minute, He's carrying a medic bag around with him. He's got gloves that medics wear. He actually did treat some people. One person, one person. Whatever his, yeah. I mean, well, he testified that Mm. he rendered aid to a number of people. So the question becomes, does the jury credit that? And is there corroborating evidence of it? Or is he just throwing it into the mix? So, Mm. yeah, I agree with you. It feels like a kid who wanted to be a hero. I can't see in his mind or in his heart to see if he just wanted to go hurt people. As I say, there's a lot for both sides to work with here. I've seen on, on his TikTok account, I think they handled his TikTok account and they mentioned this in court today. It was something like, I want to be famous or I just want to be famous. Uh, you know, not the kind of thing you want to have in a TikTok account when you land up in a court case like this. It's fascinating. I think it's an interesting flashpoint for America. We certainly are seeing sort of, it's the first real case we've seen in a long time where Americans sort of dial in pick a side and see where they stand, you know, and see whether we can get a sense of unity coming out of this courtroom. I think it's a very significant event and a significant story. It'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and I'm not at all thrilled with the way the judge is behaving or handling his courtroom because, (laughs) you know, I think the way the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd played out on TV, all of Mm -hmm. the parties, including the judge, kind of showed the country and the world the best of our criminal justice system, how it should operate, how the parties should comport themselves. I thought it was a very well-tried case, and I thought the judge did a really nice job. This judge, I'm sorry, and I know there have been chronic complaints about him, but he's something of an embarrassment to the criminal justice system. So when he has a rule that says, for example, the prosecutors can't refer to the dead folk and the surviving victim as victims, Mm. but the defense can refer to them as rioters and looters and arsonists. And what's the message? I guess they deserved what they got because they're bad people. That is the kind of unfairness, the kind of tilting the playing field in the defendant's favor 
that has no place in our criminal justice system. Play fair by both sides. It doesn't do Kyle Rittenhouse any favors either. I mean, we were watching, we played some clips at the top of the show where, you know, he doesn't seem, the, lawyer, the judge doesn't even seem to know the rulings that he's talking about. He just seems to be leaning in favor of the defense, you know, and that's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, we all understand that, you know, he's a sympathetic figure maybe, especially in Kenosha, but, you know, there are rules and you want to be giving a sense of fairness in that court. And it wasn't coming across today. He looked very biased, in my opinion. But, you know... He did, he did yeah. look biased and uh, he makes a bit of a mockery of his position and of the courts. And mm. that's unfortunate, but you know what? These are public forums. And I think anytime the citizenry can watch what goes on yeah. in inside that branch of government, that they should take advantage of it. So I'm glad it's being televised and I'm glad we're getting to see it because, you know, and the other thing, win, lose or draw, I always told my prosecutors when I was the chief of homicide, it's really more important to try cases than to win cases mm -hmm. because win, lose or draw. If you try cases that warrant being brought to court, then you are doing a service to the victim, to the victim's family, and to the community. If you lose a case, but you've given it your best shot, there's no shame in that. But the shame is in declining to bring a case for fear that you might not win a conviction. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've got one more question for you, and it has to do with Bannon. I, go, I know you're on an incredible campaign here, but it's worrying me that it's taking so long. I know it's worrying you that, that nothing's happened yet. I mean... What's going on with the uh, enforcement of that subpoena? So we're on day 20 of the mm -hmm. Steve Bannon indictment watch. I was just yelling literally on air with, uh, with Joy Reid and <laughs> Malcolm Nance and Olivia Troy. Mm -hmm. and, and I tried to make this, the same point, which is there's no excuse for waiting this long. You know, we can mm -hmm. look back and there was an EPA official named Rita Lavelle who defied a congressional subpoena, was voted in contempt of Congress, was referred to my old office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia for prosecution. And eight days later, she was indicted. And frankly, she was just involved in some financial shenanigans. She did not try to overthrow our democracy. <laughs> yeah. So time is of the essence with Steve Bannon. Why is it taking so long? There's no good reason, but there are a couple of things that might be holding it up. One, the new U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, my former colleague, Matt Graves, was just confirmed by the Senate. He just joined, rejoined my old office late last week. It may be that the acting U.S. attorney, Channing Phillips, was deferring to him because he, he is now the Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney. So hopefully they're going to move out. Some people have said, well, Merrick Garland wanted to wait until he got a court ruling which he got yesterday from Judge Tanya Chutkin, that there is, in fact, a lawful legislative purpose for but, the know, select... Didn't we know of, that? Of course. <laughs> I, of course we knew that. Yeah. I'm just giving you kind of devil's yeah. advocate what might be holding it up. Nothing. There's no good reason for it to be held up. And in fact, the 16 subpoenas that just went out to Donald Trump aides, assistants, sycophants, and co-defendants or co-conspirators, they're probably saying, you know what, they haven't touched Bannon, so why would I show up? I kind of like my chances with contempt. So that's why I've been on a rampage that not only should he be indicted for criminal contempt of Congress, but Congress needs to use its, its inherent power of contempt, which is lawful. The courts have said repeatedly it's lawful, albeit not for several decades now, but it remains 
a lawful vehicle that a co-equal branch of government, the legislative branch, has to enforce its own subpoenas and compel testimony. Because criminal contempt just means we're going to charge you and punish mm. you for the crime you committed when you defied the subpoena, but it doesn't compel your testimony. Inherent contempt is where the sergeant at arms arrests the person who failed to appear, puts him in a jail cell, and the good news is the contemptuous witness has the keys to the cell in his hand. All he mm -hmm. has to do is unlock the cell and testify that purges the contempt. Yeah, it's just this go upstairs, leave the, leave, leave the prison have cell. Done. They should have done, done it during the impeachment hearings. Mm -hmm. They should be doing it now. Representative Raskin has been saying they should do it. Jonah Goose has been saying they should do it. Jerry Conley has been saying they should do it. They should do it. They should definitely do something. It feels to me like Bannon is kind of, for me, probably the first tipping point where I think, you know, the public is not going to buy this one. If they don't actually indict him, if they don't follow through on the subpoenas, it's going to seem like there's something wrong in the DOJ. And uh, I think, you know, that'll be a, maybe a tipping point for some action because there hasn't been anything that's this egregious. But now this really does seem to cross the line if nothing happens. It'll be interesting to watch over the next few days. Glenn, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Glenn Kershaw, the federal, former federal prosecutor. Tell everyone where they can support you and your incredible uh, Justice Matters at Patreon and, and also online. Yeah, so if you come over to YouTube, my channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner, I put a legal uh, analysis video up every day, seven days a week, trying to take on the most pressing legal issue of the day and unravel it for, you know, for real people, people who aren't lawyers. Um, and then you can also find me over on Patreon, patreon.com, where we have a whole group of people. We call ourselves Team Justice and we work on pro-democracy projects. And uh, if you come over there, um, there's all sorts of perks that go along with it. I put on an annual team justice gathering on me, which is just my way of giving back and saying thank you to the people who are helping support our all volunteer efforts here at Justice Matters and Team Justice. So YouTube, Patreon, and I'm on Twitter all day and night. I can't put the phone down trying to answer <laughs> people's legal questions. You're amazing. I can't believe how much effort you put into everything you do. And it's really heartfelt and passionate. Thank you very much for being here tonight, Glenn Kirshner. Thanks for having me, Zay. I appreciate it. Have a great night. I was going to play some more of Kirby Summers, but instead of doing that, because it's going to be a little disjointed, I am going to add the entire 30-minute interview as a separate podcast. It'll land as early as tomorrow. So you'll get it there. And I apologize to Kirby for, for cutting it off. It was really interesting, but it had too long to go and we would have lost the wonderful Glenn Kirshner. That is the end of tonight's show. Really, really interesting evening. I think we've covered a lot of ground. And I, uh, I thought it was really interesting to see some of those clips. Glenn landed up referring to some of those a little later on in the show. Um, in his analysis, it certainly feels like this case has got some uh, important meaning for America going forward. And it might be one of those cases that helps, you know, change some of the polarization that's been going on. We can all agree that this guy, this is a kid, you know, no one wants anything bad to happen to a kid, yet he'd commit terrible crimes. And maybe we can see through the Kyle Rittenhouse case how so many people have been polarized and uh, weaponized and used as propaganda vehicles instead of as people, you know? This, these are real people that are being sent into these situations to inflame situations just so a party can win 
an election or win a seat. I mean, that's really what happened in Kenosha. This was a swing state, a swing district. They wanted to win it so badly uh, that they you know, created this artificial tension into which Kyle Rittenhouse was poured into. And that's how we landed up with the situation we have. That is not an America that we want to be in when a political party, which has so much promise and potential, is doing so much harm to the citizenry of the country. So uh, I'll continue to watch that story. I hope you will too. Thank you very much for being here tonight. It's been an interesting show. Uh, we'll be back on Friday with the after show. LB and Greg are both in the house, so it'll be fun to catch up with them. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, until then, I wish you all a very good night, and we'll see you again on Friday. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.